0: When I was in high school, my dad, Pastor Bill, was invited to be the speaker at a Christian camp near Belo Horizonte, and some friends of ours who had previously lived in Sao Paulo had moved there. They were the contact people, and they had a son that was about my age. His name was Randy. We had been good friends, and so I was going along with my dad to this camp, and this friend of mine there, Randy, had told me, listen, Nathaniel. Um, At the end of this camp, we have a tradition where we run a 14-kilometer race. So anyone who wants to that's participating in this camp, they they have a bus, and they pick us up, and they take us 14 kilometers away from the camp, and then we run back to the camp, and it's a race. And I think it would be fun if you participated in this race with me. Fun is a relative concept, Um, To some people, 14-kilometer race, I don't remember exactly, but it was long and it was hot and it was dusty, and I was not prepared for the challenge. I hadn't done any preparation. Now, as Paul and Barnabas continue on their first missionary journey, they are going to be confronted with four challenges to their mission. These same challenges may, at different points, also confront us today, not only in mission, but in any situation in which we are openly and willingly living for Jesus and sharing his gospel, are we prepared for these challenges? Have we counted the cost? Because living faithfully for God is a challenge. Running a 14-kilometer race for normal people is a challenge. And we have to prepare for it. So speaking and sharing and witnessing to the truth of Christ comes at a cost. Will we be prepared and ready to pay this cost and not be taken by surprise? I'll be continuing our reading in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, as we continue to accompany Paul and Barnabas as they make their way along this missionary journey. Now remember, they have most recently been in Pisidian Antioch, but there, there was a reaction against them. The, the Jews had managed to stir up persecution, so they shook the dust off their feet and made their way to a city called Iconium. And that's where we pick up the reading today. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of that city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had the faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Um, There is a tradition in uh, scholarly theological circles that from this verse suggests Barnabas was much more attractive than Paul. Um, this is serious. Um, because they immediately associated Barnabas with Zeus. You notice they say that Paul was the spokesperson. That's why they call him Hermes. What's not stated is that apparently Barnabas was quite the looker and um, was much more attractive than Paul was. That's, so he got the name Zeus. Paul was stuck with Hermes. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Four challenges of missions. And what we began to see in Acts is how divisive the gospel is. And that's the first challenge, the divisiveness of, of the gospel. We saw it in Jerusalem. And now it seems that each new town or city that Paul and Barnabas enter, the gospel causes unrest, division, and even violence. In Pisidian Antioch, there was tension between the Jews and the Gentiles who were coming to the gospel. In Iconium, as we read this morning, the people were divided, some in favor of the apostles, of what Paul and Barnabas were saying, and others dead set against it. They sided with the Jews. And of course in Lystra, when the Jews arrived from the city in Antioch, said that they won the whole crowd over against the gospel. Are we prepared for the fact that the gospel will bring division? Too often we imagine the gospel bringing calm and peace and rest. And it does, let me be clear, and it does within the hearts, souls, and the community of believers, the church. But outside and beyond that community, it stirs up awful strife. Jesus warned us of this. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus himself says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, A daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. When Jesus says he brings a sword, he's saying that his truth will cause division just as a sword divides. And how could it not? Truth does divide. Because either it is true or it is not. And so with the gospel of Christ, either people believe or they do not. There's no middle ground. The gospel is divisive. And it's ironic, isn't it? That as long as, as long as Paul and Barnabas were being acclaimed as Greek deities, as long as they were Zeus and Hermes, the whole town was their fans. Everyone was cheering for them. Everyone wanted to sacrifice to them. They were being lauded and cheered and, and, and worshipped even. But as soon as they begin to speak of the truth of the gospel, so to deny that they themselves are gods and to speak of the true God in Christ, the Lord, well, then they end up getting stoned, or at least Paul does. The gospel causes division because the gospel is truth, and we must be prepared for that reality. If we speak the gospel truly and with conviction, At some point, it's going to cause separation. It's going to cause division among people, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. That is a challenge of God's mission. The second challenge is not necessarily a cost that we must be prepared to pay for the gospel, but it is a question that is going to come up and that most of us at some point will need to navigate And I am stating it in this way. The second challenge is the place of the miraculous. What is the place of the miraculous in missions? What is the place of the miraculous in the life of the church and in proclaiming the gospel? There are very few Christians that I know of who doubt that the miracles recorded in scripture really happened. But Within the church, there is still significant division as to whether these same miracles might occur today. Or, to put it in a more accurate way, whether God might give certain individuals within his church the gift of performing miracles and healings through those people. So, some, there are some who believe that those more miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased in other words, they're not for today. They ended with the apostolic age as the apostles themselves died. So that gift was no longer necessary for the church or those gifts were no longer necessary for the church. There are others who believe that those, church, those gifts rather are still valid for today. And I, I personally am in that second camp. I believe the miraculous gifts are still valid for today. But as you will see in a moment, that they need to have their proper place and they must be pursued with a lot of discernment and wisdom. And what I want to do now is note how the miracles performed by Paul and Barnabas led to their persecution, but also take away five principles that we can extract from this passage about miracles in the life of the church or the miraculous gifts of the Spirit in the life of the church. The first principle is very basic, and it should be very clear to all of us. Healing and miracles come from God, okay? Period. All miraculous healings, miraculous gifts of the Spirit come from God. Even if someone has, quote, a gift of healing or a gift of miracles, all that means is that God chooses to minister those miracles through that particular person. Notice how Luke phrases it in verse 3. Of chapter 14. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Who gives the ability? God. Where does does the miraculous come from? Where do healings have their source? In God Himself. God makes these miracles possible. The second principle is that miracles are a confirmation Not the message. It's so easy for us to get distracted by the miraculous. Why? Because it's miraculous. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's out of the normal. But as I've already shared with you here from Acts, miracles are a sign. That's the way that Luke describes them. They are signs and wonders. And a sign points to something else. We don't become engaged with the sign itself, we look at what the sign points to. And again, in verse 3, this is very clear. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Now listen to this. Who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The message, the importance, the focus is God's grace and the message of the gospel. The miraculous is only a confirmation of the focus, which is the gospel itself. Thirdly, miracles of healing are limited. Regardless of your perspective on healings, miraculous healings, we have to note that the apostles did not heal everyone who needed healing. Neither did Jesus. Jesus did not heal every single sick person that came within his radius. He did not raise every single dead person. With whom he came in contact. And again in verse 3. Luke notes that it was. This specific context. In which God gave them the ability to perform these miracles. He Doesn't say that they were enabled for all time and in every place. It was right here specifically in Iconium. It seems that there is a pattern in Acts that miracles tend to accompany the gospel as it moves into new territory. So if you want to think of this in terms of a wave on the beach, as the wave moves along into new territory. The breaking of the wave, we could imagine, are miracles. And so these miracles, the miraculous, the healings, they are on the pioneering front of the gospel. And that once the truth of Christ has gained a foothold, once there are new disciples and believers, once there is a local church that is gaining maturity and strength, it seems that the emphasis on the miraculous wanes. And there is not the same focus upon it nor does there seem to be the same need now this may also be why reports of miracles that we hear today tend to generally speaking come from areas that are less evangelized or where the gospel is just beginning to make inroads and this could be why Because as God advances his gospel into new territory, he allows it, he enables it to be accompanied by signs and wonders to confirm the truth of what is being preached and what is being taught and what is being said about him. But miracles of healing are limited. God, even someone who might have a gift of healing, they are not given that gift by the Lord to heal everybody that comes within their circle of influence. And that kind of leads us into the fourth point. Discernment must accompany the healing gift. And I would go beyond that to say that discernment must accompany all gifts of the Spirit. Notice how we see this reflected in Paul. Paul does not heal everybody in Lystra that needs it, right? We've already talked about the limitation of the healing gift, But this particular lame man, notice how Luke emphasizes it. Paul looks directly at him. I don't know the context, but Paul looks at him. He sees him, and Paul discerns something about him. What this means is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to Paul and revealing something to Paul about this man. What does he discern? That the man has the faith to be healed. And it's only after that discernment that Paul says to him, get up get up. And it's then that the man is healed. So Paul exercises this gift with discernment. He understands when to use it and when not to use it. He understands how to use it and how not to use it. To illustrate this, um, I'm going to pick on I'm going to pick on one of my nephews, Simeon, who's actually here this morning. I have his permission to do this, okay? Uh, Simeon is 16, and for those of you who may have heard me in the early service, I said he was 15. My apologies, I didn't want to sell you short by a year. Um, Simeon's dad is kind of like Glenn and Dalton. He can do anything, fix anything, make anything. And one thing that, that my brother-in-law, Jeff, made for all of his Nephews, all of his male nephews were these handcrafted wooden swords. And when when Jeff thought that the nephews had reached an appropriate age of accountability, he would give them their own personal wooden sword. And um, these are really well made, by the way. I remember when Simeon was five, I think, possibly six, again, I don't want to uh, sell you short by a year, We were living in the U.S. that year, and we had kind of had a family reunion, so a lot of the cousins were together, and uh, Simeon had already received his sword. And um, while my brother-in-law tends to be a very wise person, cautious person, I think perhaps with Simeon, he had presented him the sword a little bit too early. And so I was looking out the window of our kitchen into this backyard area, at the place we were living, and there were many cousins out there playing. And some of the local kids were out there as well. And they were kind of all gathered in a close group together. um, And all of a sudden, I just saw this group scatter. Like people turning and running. And what was revealed at the center of this group was Simeon with the sword, wildly slashing about this way and that, turning and... And... um, Simeon was wielding the sword without discernment. Um, thank you for allowing me to use that story. I'll pay you later. Um, and so, you know, we would, we would like to think that as a boy grows a little older, they learn discernment in the use of a wooden sword. You don't hit anybody with that, unless they agree to be hit. You wait until the other person also has a similar sword with which to defend themselves. Um, You don't swing at people younger than you are. You don't swing with your eyes closed. You know, you use it mostly as something to be honored with and not to affect other people with. In a similar vein, when God gives gifts to people, whether they're miraculous gifts or what we might call non-miraculous gifts. They need to be used with discernment. And discernment is something that comes with time and with growth. Because when they are used without discernment, they can actually become destructive. This brings us to the final principle about the healings, about the miraculous, and it dovetails with the fourth. Character and maturity should be our greatest goal. Okay, character and maturity should be our greatest goal. So along with discernment, spiritual maturity and godly character are essential to practicing the gifts well. And again, it's so easy to just want to focus on the gifts and forget that the gifts are to be used for the building up of the church. The gifts are to be used with character and with godly maturity. I had a friend a number of years ago who was convinced that he had the gift of prophecy and he would use this perceived gift very freely and very widely and would tell people he had a word of knowledge for them and that he had a prophecy for them. The problem is this person's life was completely in disarray. He was living in sin, unrepentantly. He, the fruit of his life was not fruit of the Spirit It was not love, joy, peace, patience. It was division. It was bitterness. It was anger. It was hurt. And so, when he tried to exercise exercise this gift that he believed he had, it caused division. It caused pain. It caused it caused destruction. It was it was destructive. So, when these gifts are used apart from maturity in Christ and good character, the result is destructive. God gives the gifts. Okay, They are divinely given from him. We can't manipulate him into giving us certain gifts. But when he does, our energy and attention in prayer should be focused on seeking maturity in Christ, investing ourselves in the word of God, and having our character shaped by the fruit of the spirit. The gifts are given by the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is grown in us over time. And the fruit of the Spirit is the sign of maturity. And that's what we should be focusing upon. That's what we should be eager for. That's where our desire should lie. If we do that, if we pursue the fruit of the Spirit, if we pursue godly character, if we pursue maturity in Christ, the gifts will take care of themselves. I know that's been a long rabbit trail, but now we're back to the third challenge of missions. Witnessing to the unchurched. Few of us have ever had this kind of experience of talking about Jesus or sharing the gospel to someone who truly has absolutely zero background or foundation in about God or about Jesus. This is the the context that Paul and Barnabas are facing in Lystra. It's a completely pagan city. So, the only frame of reference that the locals have is the Greek pantheon Zeus, Hermes, Aphrodite. And so, when they see the miraculous, they immediately attribute it to the only deities of which they're aware. I remember some friends of mine who lived on the southern coast of Brazil for a while, and they had a ministry to fishermen these very small enclaves of fishing villages, many of which were located on isolated islands off the coast of of southern Brazil. And uh, I remember them saying that they often had experiences of making contact with these villages, perhaps for the first time, and beginning to share the gospel and talking about Jesus and even asking them, have you ever heard of Jesus? And literally receiving the answer, well, he's not from this village But he he might live on the other island. But we don't know him. Few of us have really had that kind of, of interaction. And Paul and Barnabas have entered. Up until now, they've been ministering in synagogues. And many of the people have some background, some knowledge, some understanding of the Jewish religion. Of who this Yahweh God would be. But now in... In Lystra, it's a completely different story. And we see that even, even Paul and Barnabas struggle a little bit with this. Now, of course, they're also tearing their robes in, in the middle of a mob that's going crazy and trying to worship them. But as they yell down this mob, what is the strategy they use? What is the common ground that they are looking for to build a bridge with these people who don't have any concept of the Jewish Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures? They have no concept of the Jewish religion. They're not God-fearers. How can we build the bridge? What is it that Paul uses? He uses nature. He uses nature. It's not the only time that Paul uses nature. Nature. Actually, when Paul writes to the Roman church in chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, he specifically makes the statement that because of the way God has revealed certain of his qualities, certain of his, um, certain, um, not certain, but how he has revealed who he is or many things about him in nature, humanity is without excuse. So even those who have never had the gospel directly proclaimed to them in words, Paul is saying, nature is enough to begin the search. And God has promised, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. So nature, creation, is a gift that God has given to all of humanity. And no, I don't think someone can take a leaf... You know, that piece of nature, look at the leaf and say, oh, I see. God is a creator of all things. And God is Trinity. Clearly, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, so I'm a sinner, and the Son came to earth and took on human form and flesh and died on the cross for me. And if I believe in him, I'll have everlasting life. No, you're not going to get there from a leaf. But what Paul is saying and even what he tries to describe to the crowd here in Lystra is, Look at what's out there. Something has to be behind this. It can't possibly be an accident. Where do you think your rain comes from? Where do you think the joy in your heart comes from? This is, the source of this is God. And I'm here to tell you about this God. So he uses nature to build that bridge. And I think that's a, that's a, An idea for us today. It's also a strategy for us to use nature because God made it. And he has revealed aspects of himself within it to use it as a bridge. Because that's where Paul starts. He starts at the beginning with creation. Who made all this? Well, I'm here to tell you about the person who made all this. So nature is a good place to start. When we're facing the challenge of witnessing to the unchurched. The final challenge to missions, I think, is also the most difficult one. And it's the reality of suffering. We're only at the very beginning of the missionary efforts of the apostles, but already persecution is real and the suffering's heavy. Early on in Jerusalem, Peter and John were imprisoned overnight. They were released. They were imprisoned again. They were released. Peter was imprisoned. He was miraculously released. But then James himself was executed by Herod. Peter again was. Was was imprisoned. So now persecution and suffering for the apostles is continuous and unrelenting. So it seems every city they go to, more persecution, more suffering. Paul and Barnabas were persecuted in Pisidian Antioch, so they shook the dust off their feet and went to Iconium. In Iconium, they hear of a plot to stone them. So they flee, they run away to Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul is stoned to the point that everyone thought he was dead. I want us to actually settle here in this stoning for a moment. Because we oftentimes jump over it. And I want us to imagine, engage our imaginations, and put ourselves in the place of Paul. I don't know if he was standing. I don't know if he was lying on the ground. And just imagine yourself being pelted with those rocks, unable to defend yourself. What are you going to do? Try to ward off, throw up your hands? Angry, bitter, screaming mob intent on killing you. You don't stone someone if you're just trying to punish them. You stone someone when you want to kill them. And that's what the crowd is trying to do. So just for a moment, think put yourself in Paul's shoes. Beyond the physical pain and suffering, there's also the emotional hurt, the humiliation. The shame that would come with that kind of torture. You know, in Jewish law, in the Old Testament, why were people stoned? They were stoned for being against God. They were stoned for being law breakers. And here Paul has come to try to share with these people salvation, forgiveness, hope, eternal life. And his whole desire is to serve them. And what do they do? They stone him. It's definitely a parallel to Christ and his sufferings. And as I said at the beginning, there is still a price to pay for serving the Lord faithfully, whether in missions or otherwise. And part of that price is suffering. Paul suffers over and over in town after town, physically and psychologically. Could he have avoided that suffering? I think so. At any point, Paul could have said, I'm done with this. I'm going back home to Tarsus. He could have avoided all this suffering. All he had to do was leave, quit, stop. Those of us who are followers of Jesus today, we can also avoid some suffering. I mean, there's some suffering that comes to us against our will. But sometimes we can avoid suffering through disobedience. That's an option that's often open to us. But do we want to pay that price? We're repeatedly warned in Scripture that suffering is a part of following Jesus. And the passage in Mark that Brian read for us this morning makes that so clear. I mean, Jesus says to his disciples, all people are going to hate you because of me. Suffering is one of the tools that God uses to refine us, to draw us closer to him, and to sanctify us, to to make us holy. Paul and Barnabas suffered to say nothing of our Lord Jesus himself. Why would we think that things would be different for us? But we need to count the cost. We need to be aware that this is a challenge to the mission of God. And we need to be prepared to be obedient even in suffering. So to bring this to a close. We've been talking about challenges but I want to end with the blessing. The last verse Is actually full of compassion, joy, and comfort. Did you catch it? Did you notice what it is? Paul is stoned. Everyone thinks he's dead. They drag him outside the city. They want him outside of the city walls. No burial, no care for his body, no respect. And they abandon him there. Then what happens? The disciples gather around him. Who are these disciples? Paul and Barnabas were traveling alone. So these are new believers. These are the fruit of Paul and Barnabas's ministry there at Lystra. The church is being built. And Paul is there as the missionary and yet it's the new disciples that are ministering to him. And they do that at great risk to themselves. I mean, this guy was just stoned. He's an outcast. Who wants to be associated with him now? And yet, we see the courage of these new disciples. They go out. They, they, they are willing to be seen identifying with Paul and caring for him. It seems that this is also a miraculous healing. Because they gather around him and he's able to stand. And the next day, he's already able to travel. He's not traveling by ambulance, right? I mean, he's traveling on foot. But what I want to see here is the blessing and beauty of the church. Yes, there are these challenges to God's mission. But the end goal of that mission is the growth of the church. The building up of the body of Christ. And we see the blessing as these new converts, these new disciples gather around Paul. So, I want to ask us today, you specifically, I want you to think about this. How could you gather around the missionaries? Either the missionaries that are part of our community here at Calvary or the missionaries that we support who live far away. How could we practically gather around them? Because sending money is, is great. It's very necessary. It's helpful. They need money to survive and to live. But what are some other ways that we can bring comfort, that we could build relationship, that we could let them know that they are cared for, prayed for, valuable? And we could even take one step beyond that, even pull it back even more closely to home. How can we gather around one another? What is God asking specifically of you in this regard? How do we provide that community and comfort and care for the person sitting next to us in the church building or the people watching online? How can we lift up those who are fallen, love those who are hard to love, invest in those who have been humiliated or who are poor or weak? Because... In spite of all the pressure, pain, suffering, and persecution we find in this passage, the blessing of the church stands above it all. That's how the passage ends. Is with the newborn church carrying out the mission of God and caring for the missionary. So even as we count the cost of living out the mission of God, navigating the divisiveness of the gospel, walking the minefield or the possible minefield of spiritual gifts, learning to witness to the unchurched and facing the reality of suffering, we celebrate that we do all these things as part of the body of Christ, the family of God, alongside our sisters and brothers. And in that family, we both receive and give to sustain and to support one another.